and we express my appreciation again uh, for our young musicians today. Uh, I see Mr. Baker nodding his head vigorously. What do you want? I want to ask you to take a moment and ask yourself that question. Seriously, not what you think you should want. Not what the right answer would be. What is it that you want? In 2009, a fellow by the name of Jonathan Raitt, who's a 35-year-old British businessman, 35 years old, was rife with $46 million in the bank from the sale of a business. And you think of some of the difficulties that you might be facing in life. Might $46 million help that a bit? And Wright was a well-adjusted, happy, well-off individual. He had no skeletons in his closet, was not um, under investigation for anything or under indictment for anything. So it came as a shock to everyone who knew him and when without any explanation or note, took a shotgun and ended his life. Proverbs 18.10 says the, the wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it an unscalable wall. And it so often happens that we, we, we think, oh, to be secure if I just had this or just had that. But, but Proverbs tells us that there's a, a deeper truth. Now, you know, at this point you might conclude, well, the problem was in his thinking that what we really want is something that could be bought with money. What we should really want is heaven. And I want to tell you that if you think that, you'll only make the problem worse. The passage that we're looking at today from Peter's first letter in chapter 1 is verses 17 through 21. This is Peter's letter written to the elect exiles scattered throughout uh, the nations of that time, and it's God's word to you, elect exiles, and scattered throughout the nations today, but particularly to those of you here in Leesburg. And since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as gold or silver that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect he was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and hope are in God. And Father, as we consider your word today, as 
we examine it, help us to examine our hearts. Help our faith and hope to truly be in you through Jesus Christ. For Father, he told us, prayed for us, that we may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent, and in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, as we've been looking at Peter's first letter here, we've seen that we don't have a home here. And we never will. It's God's will for us to be in this world, but not of it. To make us strangers and aliens, to scatter us throughout the nations of the world. Not due to sin, but for the sake of the salvation of the world. And in this world, we saw that God calls us to true holiness. And we saw last week that true holiness is uh, not having a sense of religious superiority to the unwashed masses around us. It's not engaging in harsh treatment of our bodies. That true holiness is to be found in looking like Jesus. And there are two errors for us to avoid when we consider God's calling us to holiness. One is to claim that we've arrived. That's part of what it means for us to be strangers and aliens, sojourners and pilgrims here. The Apostle John in his first letter writes that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. And so the one extreme to avoid is the idea that we've arrived, that God's called us to holiness and we've arrived. The other extreme is the extreme of a feigned humility that hides behind the doctrine of total depravity and offers it to God as an excuse as to why we cannot be holy as though the blood of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit that raised him was powerless as they stood before our sin. And the same John who wrote, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, also wrote, we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. And the goal to which we're getting there is the means, and the means is the goal, and I'll explain that a bit later but we must recognize that we have an impartial father Peter says since you call on a father who judges each man's works impartially live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear one of the things that God reveals about himself repeatedly is that he is impartial in Deuteronomy 10.27, we read, The Lord your God shows no partiality. In 2 Chronicles 19.7, there is no injustice or partiality with the Lord your God. And it hasn't changed as we've uh, crossed into the New Testament. In uh, Colossians 3 and Ephesians 6, we read, There is no 
partiality with him. It, it bears us reflecting on that a bit because we seldom see impartial fathers today. Today we so often see children that are coddled and excused. I'm, I'm told that now in the public schools you can't even tell students that they're not allowed to be on their phones during class. And there's a growing uh, teacher shortage for that very reason. Because they're intolerable, it's an intolerable situation to work under. And, and that situation is due, you know, not to the kids. It's due to the parents. Who show a partiality that, well, whatever my child thinks or wants or needs. It was so refreshing for me to hear a story uh, from my wife from the school where she teaches of a young lady who was not doing too well in her class, not doing well in any of her classes, and the father wanted to know why. And rather than the all too common, oh, now you know you're being so hard on my little Mary. Mary's not really her name. You're being so hard on my little Mary. I'm sure she's doing her very best went home and established some rules for little Mary. No internet, no phone, no video games, no friends until your grades come up. It's amazing what a genius little Mary became in such a short time. A, a coddling father who shows partiality is a father who cares about his comfort, not about his kids. And that is not God. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. The great mistake that you could make is to think that since I'm a child of God, he'll show partiality to me. But Peter's talked about obedience, and it's important for you to understand that your ability to be obedient and to be holy is based on a reality that is outside of you. Peter had said at the very beginning of his letter, you've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. I want to tell you that if you, if, you, if you try to be obedient, if you strive for holiness on your own, independent of God, you will fail every time. I, I tell you that from the history of the devotional writings from the early church, and I tell you that throughout my Christian life from my own experience. If you try to be obedient, if you try to strive to be holy on your own, independent from God, you will fail every time. There is the closest connection between Jesus and his person and work and the spirit of God in his person and work and your faith and obedience. 
And that reality is highlighted for us between Romans 6, 7, and 8. Uh, You know, one of the, the things that I suppose helps us in our Bibles is that we've got chapter and verse divisions. We can find things easily. But part of the problem there is that we parse up and separate things that should never be separated. And, and Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 are one of those things. Those verses, those passages, those chapters should never be read in isolation from one another. And those Chapters highlight the problem we drift toward and the solution to it. And so in Romans 6, not to read the whole thing, but a representative portion, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, we too might walk in new life. For sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now when we forget that, and we don't live out of it, what happens? Well, the New Testament has this word it uses, it's the word It's the word flesh, and particularly as Paul uses that word, we can read it and at first maybe misunderstand it. Paul's not talking about our skin or our body, but he's talking about ourself in our first creation, now estranged from God. That's what the word flesh means. Now estranged from God and inclined to our own strength and our independence from God. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 7 that he knew that struggle. He said, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So that struggle was... Real. Uh, Saint Augustine said that uh, sin is homo in curvatus in se, and and Luther loved that phrase, that that concept so much that he translated it for us. It became a part of his theology. Sin is man turned inward on himself. That's our hopeless condition before we're redeemed. And it's the place we can slip back to so easily once we are redeemed. And that's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 7. It's why he can say, how can we who died to sin still live in it? It's why he can say that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in new life. It's why he could say, sin will not have dominion over you since you were not under law but under grace. And then turn around and say, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. What's the solution? Well, that's where Romans 8 comes in. 
For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But it's not something that happens automatically. And so Paul says to the churches at Galatia, he says, but I say to you, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He says, if we live in the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Your ability to be obedient to Jesus, to be holy in this world, to be like him, is bound up with, as Peter had said in the early part of his letter, the sprinkling of Jesus' blood and the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Your Obedience will never come when you're curved in on yourself. If you're looking to your own strength, and yet that's what we naturally gravitate to do. That's why it's important, as Peter's told us earlier, we saw a couple weeks ago, to be constantly regirding the loins of our mind, to be thinking rightly. For it's not with perishable things like silver and gold that you've been redeemed. Uh, silver and gold, by the way, the things that most of the world runs after, um, that, that most of the world highly values, uh, the threatening of which keeps most of the world awake at night. And the word of God says it's perishable. It's, it's like the grass. Can you imagine being kept up at night worrying about your grass? But, it, but it's not with perishable things that you were redeemed with your, from your empty way of life. That word empty means fruitless, useless, powerless. That, that, that's what the flesh is. That's what we are curved in on ourselves. Fruitless, useless, powerless, looking to ourselves for righteousness, for holiness, for strength, for obedience. But no, he says you've been redeemed with what is imperishable, what is unspoilable, what is unfading with the precious blood of Christ. Do you understand that when you think about the holiness that God calls you to, your struggle is not with this sin or that sin, but it's with the flesh. This sin or that sin are just symptoms of it. Likewise, the holiness to which you are called, the Christ-likeness, obedience to Christ, is, is not found in your deeds of righteousness, but expressed there. Those are the symptoms of new life in 
Christ. The results of them. Your righteousness is in Christ. And when you live that truth, when you walk by the Spirit, as Paul says, it results in obedience, it results in holiness, it results in Christ-likeness. And it will result in you looking very different from the world in which you live, but of which you are not a part. And how well you and I are doing with living as God calls us to live in Christ is summed up and rests on a question. It's the question I asked you at the beginning of my address today to you. What do you want? What do you want? Take a moment to think about that. Not, not what should I want, what do I think I should want? You don't have to answer me, but you can't hide the truth from God and you'd be wise not to hide it from yourself. What do you want? Do you want peace? Do you want freedom from difficulty? Do you want security? Do you want wisdom? Do you want righteousness? Do you want heaven? If you want any of those things, therein lies the problem. And it's precisely here that lies the distinction between flesh and spirit. Not not our spirit, you understand that Paul's talking, but the spirit of God, orienting ourselves to the spirit of God. Is it possible for someone to want peace? You know, we'd say, well, peace is good, security is good, wisdom is good, righteousness is good, heaven is good. Is it possible for someone to want peace, to want security, to want wisdom, to want righteousness, to want heaven without wanting God? That was precisely the sin of Adam. The tree of knowledge of good and evil by which they apart from God, could gain wisdom. Uh, Apart from God, they had hoped, could gain life. And and we're told of uh, of, of the progress in the woman's heart that she looked at it and she saw that it was was good for food and a, a delight to the eye and was desirable to make one wise. What do you want? Did you ever notice if you read through your Bible that your Bible says very little about heaven? Mentions it. Gives very little detail. Speaks very little of it. Why is that? Have you ever met someone, not trying to be provocative or profane, But have you ever met someone who seriously did not want to go to heaven? I had someone once who was an atheist tell me, he said to me, as I talked to him about Christ saying that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one would come to God but through him, he said, "Are are you telling me that God would deny someone heaven just because he didn't believe in him? 
The question for that man and the question for you is, what do you think heaven is? Most people think it's a celestial Disney world, a place of endless enjoyment and delight and goodness, but they, but they think of heaven itself as something that is in curvatus and say, it's turned in on me, and it's all about me. If you go to the end of your Bibles, Revelation 21 and 22, and you read there, it's plain that what what little bit is said about heaven and the picture of it uh, that's painted is that heaven is all about God. People want heaven if they don't have to take God. Or maybe, maybe, They'll take God, so to speak, as a means of getting to heaven. I I, I hear preachers encouraging encouraging that kind of thinking. Well, if you want to go to heaven, you have to trust in Christ. As though heaven is the goal and Christ or God is the means to get there. In his book, Reflection on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis wrestles with why there are some psalms that don't seem to recognize an afterlife at all. It's the reason why the Sadducees didn't believe that there was anything after death. And Lewis wrestles with that. He says, why is that? And and, and as he muses on it, he gives this answer. It's it's it's, it's a, it's a, a conjectured answer. But he says, you know, Israel had come out of Egypt and Egypt had a huge emphasis on the afterlife. Uh, So huge, in fact, that you see the great pyramids dedicated to it from the moment a pharaoh came to power, began to build this thing that was not merely his tomb. It was was veritably a machine to convey him to a wondrous afterlife. And Lewis said, perhaps God's people must learn not to look for or to long for a blessed afterlife, but must learn to look for and long for God himself. And only once they had learned to delight in God, to glorify and enjoy God with all of their lives and for all of their lives would they be told the best part, that it would never end that they would glorify and enjoy him forever. The inheritance that is imperishable, unspoilable, and unfadable. What what is that inheritance that Peter spoke about? He didn't mention it, but do you know it's God himself? God had said to Abraham in Genesis 15, Abraham, when it's translated properly, Abraham, do not be afraid. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. So I ask you again, what do you want? Search your heart. You want peace? You want ease? You want comfort? You want wisdom? You want righteousness? Do you want heaven? Or do you want God? I want to tell you that if you want those things apart from God, you'll, you'll never get them. If you want God only, God alone, all of those things will be yours.
And Peter says, through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and your hope are in God. Is that where your faith and your hope is? Listen, I know this has been long. I'm going to just beg your indulgence for a moment as I close here. How much does God love you? He loved you enough to send his son to die for you. Please don't get that wrong. God God doesn't love you because his son died for you. Jesus said it was because that God loved the world that he sent his son. God doesn't love you because Christ died for you. Paul says God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's because of that love that was set upon us that Paul would say, if God is for us, who can be against us? He didn't spare his own son, but delivered, us up, delivered him up for us all. God is not for us because he sent his son. He sent his son because he's for us. So this afternoon, this evening, look up the word inheritance in a Bible concordance. You know what God's inheritance is? You know the Bible says God has an inheritance. You know what it is? It's you. You're God's inheritance. Do you know what your inheritance is that can never perish, spoil, or fade? It's him. Do you understand that nothing else will satisfy you, though your flesh tries to convince you mightily that it will, not riches, not safety, not security, not wisdom, not heaven itself, if you had those things apart from him. We we prayed it today. Augustine said it. You've made us for yourself. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. What do you want? God wants you. Look at the lengths he went to to redeem you. Look at what it cost him to have you. And you'll never get it. You'll never understand what it means to be or why you must be a stranger and an alien here. Why no earthly kingdom can ever be your home why you'll never find any comfort here. You'll never understand any of that until you set yourself to wanting him as much as he wants you. And you can't do that until you walk by the Spirit and abandon curving in on yourself. Father, grant us your grace, uh, we pray to do just that. Uh, Father, you have called us to holiness and you will spare us no pain of body or soul until it's formed in us. And so, Father, grant us your grace, we pray. Help us to easily submit to you, uh, to look outwardly and not curve inwardly, to keep in step with the Spirit, as Paul says, to walk by the Spirit so that 
uh, we will not gratify the flesh, for nothing good dwells in us that is in our flesh. But Father, there is something good that dwells in us for you, O Lord, have caused your spirit to dwell in us. And help us to walk by that spirit through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.